It's the Adam Ragusea Podcast, episode 45. Hey, remember a few years ago I made a video about my one-time favorite TV chef, Mario Batali? I talked about how I have tried to reconsider that particular fandom of mine in the present context, where Batali is revealed to be guilty of serial sexual harassment at best and sexual assault at worst. There have, of course, been developments in Batali's case since I made that video. Batali has, in a court of law, been acquitted of indecent assault and battery charges. I'm going to talk about those developments and how or if they have changed my mind about Mario, and I will talk about that in the context of a broader, hour-long rumination on one of the great cultural dilemmas of our time, which is how or if to consume content created by people who do or have done bad things, which is a category of people that definitely contains me, by the way, and it probably contains you. You may be wrestling right now with whether to consume podcasts and videos by this Ragusea guy in spite of all the shitty things he has done in his life. And I assure you that list is long. I keep that list in a dusty box at the back of my mind where I never look at it, but somehow I feel it looking at me all the time. So, a listener, also by the name of Adam, writes in from... Hershey, Pennsylvania, a city of great personal significance to me, Adam writes, quote, There is currently a vitriolic debate amongst varying internet communities about supporting a recent product that came out whose source material was written by someone that is a self-identified TERF. Adam, the letter writer, is, I believe, referring to the big new video game set in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter universe. Adam, you did send a video, uh, but the sound did not work, so thank you for writing up your question as well. Adam continues, quote, Because of this person's extremist beliefs, people say that if you consume the media that is based upon the hateful person's work, you too are hateful. Adam goes on, So my question, he writes, I personally believe that it is okay to enjoy media that may be written or based upon works written by a hateful person. The notion or concept of death of the author should absolutely apply in this case, but, interestingly enough, amongst my peers, it seems like the notion of death of the author only applies to, well, dead authors. Can you assist me in explaining death of the author and separating an author from their work? Is that something that is only possible once the author is dead? End quote. Well, that is the conclusion, Adam, you may have drawn from my old video about Mario Batali, if you saw that one. I didn't say that you can only love a bad artist's work after they've died, but I did say their death makes it a lot easier. The literal death of the artist makes it much less likely, though not impossible, that your consumption will materially support a person or an agenda that you deem deplorable. That doesn't mean that we should celebrate just any a-hole because he's dead. Christopher Columbus is dead, and yet I'm on record saying no holiday or anything else should be celebrated in his honor. Chris Columbus was a monster by the standards of his day. I'm not talking about us modern people looking back on a late medieval person like Columbus and imposing our values and standards of conduct upon him. Columbus was a monster, according to his own contemporaries and peers. Nearly everyone who had anything to do with that man ended up hating him. I mean, the ones who survived long enough to hate him and to tell someone else about it. I talked about this before, but it was on like the first or second episode of the Adam Ragusea podcast, so a lot of you might not have heard it, but the entire idea of celebrating Columbus in the United States is or was a revisionist project intended to integrate recent Italian immigrants, such as my family, into mainstream white American society. We're talking about dark-skinned, Catholic, poor, and uneducated Southern Italians trying to get themselves admitted into the very concept of whiteness in America. They said, hey, we're not outsiders in here. We discovered America, setting aside the fact that one cannot really discover a set of continents already inhabited by some 60 million people and potentially far more than that, and setting aside that Columbus was arguably more Spanish than he was Italian. 
America was discovered by Italians. Therefore, we are as American as anyone, this claim went. And other Americans who were trying to be inclusive and enlightened said, Aha, you're right. So as a gesture to this historically marginalized immigrant community, let's make Columbus Day a holiday. Never mind that celebrating Columbus does far more to reject and to insult a far more historically marginalized group of Americans, indigenous Americans, who remember Columbus as the monster that even his European colonialist contemporaries regarded him to be. I am not someone who wants to rename absolutely everything named after somebody who was kind of an a-hole, but Columbus Day should not exist. No one should celebrate or honor Columbus, whether he's living or dead. If you want to honor the contributions of Italian-Americans, just make a big pot of red sauce, put on a, a white tank top, brutally tear off a chunk of bread, reach down into the pot of sauce, ideally with a long, hairy arm, and dip that bread in the sauce, Sonny Corleone style, the way Jimmy Kahn did. Noted Italian-American James Kahn, star of The Godfather, whose real father was a kosher meat dealer. I'm not mad about it. There's lots of cultural affinity between Jews and Italians. Our mothers generally get mad at us for the same basic reasons. My point is, Death is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for a-holes, and it might not be for J.K. Rowling when her time comes, as it inevitably will, because the same night awaits us all. Rowling is so committed to her turfiness, and so incredibly wealthy, that I could easily see her establishing some turfy organization in her will to be supported by her estate's share of future revenues from Harry Potter intellectual property, and thus your consumption of Potterverse products could directly fund continued turfiness in the world. We're not going to talk about J.K. Rowling the whole hour, but in order to engage with Adam's question and to eventually talk about Mario Batali, I do think I need to get somewhat into the substance of the complaint against Rowling. I am an avid reader of history. When I sit down to read for fun, it's usually history. And when you read history, you see, plain as day, that some percentage of the human race, maybe 10 to 20% of all the people who've ever lived, 10 or 20% of people clearly did not fit into the strict binary conception of sex and gender that states that men have penises and they like to have sex with women and women have vaginas and they like to have sex with men. Or at least women tolerate sex with men within the confines of marriage purely for the purposes of procreation, of course. The fact that lots of people don't fit into that strict binary is not new. You look at history and you see them plain as day. And I'm not just talking about ancient civilizations that had established concepts of some kind of like third gender, though those are numerous. Ancient Arabian slash Islamic civilization had several different terms and concepts for people who aren't all man or all woman. Lots of indigenous American societies, ancient Egypt, ancient India. Let's restrict ourselves to Western Christian society, the kings and queens of England. There have been 42 of them since the Norman conquest of 1066. If you leave out your, uh, your Lady Jane Greys and your other disputed monarchs, that is 42 very well-documented lives from the past in elite Christian society. How many of them were LGBTQ plus, etc.? Well, the second one, William Rufus, son of William the Conqueror, was probably into dudes. It's hard to parse the uh, prudish, euphemistic language used by the chroniclers of the time, but let's put William II in the sexual and gender minority column. Richard the Lionheart, probably into dudes. That's maybe why he liked going on crusade so much. Crusade is just butch warrior dudes out on the road, hot bunking it with each other in their tents, helping each other take off their armor, far away from the prying eyes of Christendom. Yeah, the crusaders had priests in tow, but what priest is going to challenge a big dude with a sword in the middle of the desert? 
Edward I was, of course, the most hetero-alpha there's ever been, but his son, Edward II? The foppish way in which Edward II is portrayed in the movie Braveheart is homophobic AF. Go to hell, Mel Gibson. But that portrayal did not come out of nowhere. Edward really was probably in love with Piers Gaveston. So we're up to uh, three kings and queens out of 42. At least one chronicler thought that uh, Richard II had uh, a little sugar in his tank, as they say here in the American South. No children, and he was awfully close with Robert de Vere. Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen, never married. I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, she said. Elizabeth is trickier because she was such a cipher, even in her own time. No one ever really knew what was up with Elizabeth, and that's the way that she liked it. But you take her clear ambivalence toward male suitors, combined with her deep attachments to female courtiers and the fact that she often behaved about as male as a 17th century aristocratic woman could behave. And I'm a guess that she would have called herself genderqueer or something had she been born in this century. I'm going to put her in the column. Then we get to James I. I'm sorry, Scots, James I of England and James VI of Scotland. James was as openly bisexual as a 16th century person could be. He liked to put his scepter pretty much anywhere. And furthermore, he was openly feminine in a way that was remarkable to his contemporaries, especially in contrast to how butch his predecessor, Elizabeth, had been. The saying around court, carefully coded into Latin, was... Elizabeth was king, now James is queen. William of Orange. Married to Mary, of course. They ruled jointly as William and Mary, but no children, no mistresses, just lots of male favorites and lots of whispering among the courtiers. William is another guy who seemed to like being at war all the time, perhaps because war was a place where all the dudes could camp away from everybody else. I'm putting him in the column. William's sister-in-law, Queen Anne, probably in love with Sarah Churchill. They had those little pet names for each other, Mrs. Morley and Mrs. Freeman. And when Sarah got married and started being away with her husband too often, love gets slippery when it's wet, Lionel Richie once told us, and he was right. Anne got herself a new lady of the bedchamber, Abigail Hill. With all of these, it's really difficult to untangle real history from rumors that were started by the king or queen's political enemies, but let's just assume, for the sake of argument, that everybody we just discussed was some kind of sexual or gender minority. That's eight out of 42 monarchs, 19%. 21% is the portion of U.S. Zoomers, Generation Z, who identified as LGBTQ in a Gallup poll last year. I'm pretty sure it's always been like this. It ain't new. Science is still working this out, but I'm a guess it's chiefly genetic. Most of what determines gender identity and sexuality happens inside your head, plus maybe your endocrine system, your hormones, and genetics obviously affect what goes on in your head an awful lot. There have always been people who mentally and or physically do not fit into strictly binary gender labels and gender roles. All that changes is how such people are viewed and treated by the society around them. And we went through a period of very strict, very conservative binary gender roles in the West that only really changed in the late 20th century. Gay people were pretty much done being forced into hetero relationships that left them and their partners unfulfilled for life. Western society came around to the idea that some dudes are into dudes and some ladies are into ladies and letting them do what they want to do doesn't hurt a soul, so let them do it. But as the social acceptance of homosexuality grew, other people started saying, hey... This isn't just as simple as some dudes are into dudes and some ladies are into ladies. Gender is about more than sexuality. It's a very complex soup of biological, 
psychological and cultural factors, and it always has been. If you think all organisms that reproduce sexually are either biologically male or female, you need to take more biology classes. If you think all people have either male or female chromosomes, you need to take biology classes. If you think all people come out of the womb with clearly male or female internal or external genitalia, biology classes. This is to say nothing of all the gender stuff that happens entirely in your head. This shit is really fuzzy. To say nothing of the extreme fuzziness of cultural gender, all the signifiers we use to position ourselves somewhere on a male-female spectrum, the clothes, the hairstyles, the way you walk, the way you talk, all that, to say nothing of who you want to have sex with. That doesn't mean that male and female don't exist. They do exist. They're just abstractions. Male and female exist in the same way that squares and circles exist. Squares and circles are idealized intellectual abstractions to which we compare the far more complex shapes that we find in the material world. There are no perfect circles or squares in the real world. There are things that are very close to being a perfect circle or square, but zoom in close enough and you will find little imperfections, or let's, let's call them complexities. Real-world shapes are at least a little more complex than a perfect circle or a square. And some shapes are far more complex. Some shapes are kind of halfway between a circle and a square. And a few shapes are triangles. Off on their own spectrum. Gender is like that. Always has been. That doesn't mean male and female are fake any more than squares and circles are fake. Maleness is real. Even if I am not 100% man. I think I'm like 95% man. And that's why I have been uh, maintaining my beard lately with Manscaped, sponsor of this episode. Yes, Manscaped now sells beard products. It's not just about uh, sculpting your junk anymore. Manscaped can help sculpt your face. I hold in my hands the uh, Beard Hedger Pro Kit. I like my beard. It serves as a piece of armor protecting my face from the harsh glare of the camera, but Lauren has been on me about trimming my beard, getting it uh, high and tight, and so she just doesn't want me to look like I've been riding the rails. The box tells me exactly what to do, which is good, because I don't know. It tells me to wet my beard and then prepare it for action with the Manscaped Beard Shampoo and Conditioner. All of this comes in the box. Then I am to brush out my beard with the beautiful comb that you get in the box. And then I am to trim with the titular beard hedger. It is cordless. It's waterproof. It has a rotary wheel for uh, choosing one of 20 hair cutting lengths, all with uh, one guard. So you're not going to have a drawer full of extra attachments that you have to keep track of. The titanium coated T-blade mowed through my beard like supple grass while leaving my skin unscathed. I used the uh, beautiful scissors from the kit to snip my stragglers, and then I used the brush from the kit to brush out all the loose stubble. I felt like a legit barber doing that. Then I rubbed in a little manscaped beard oil and beard balm to relieve dryness of both hair and skin and leave me with a lustrous beardy glow. These are all dermatologist-tested formulations. I did this almost two days ago, and I think my beard is still looking awfully high and tight, the way my lady likes it. Manscaped Beard Hedger. One stroke, one guard, 20 lengths. No matter what percentage man you are, consider this offer. Get 20% off and free shipping with my code Ragusia at manscaped.com. Get those drapes matching the carpet. That is 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Just use my code Ragusia and thank you, Manscaped. Anyway, the male-female gender binary is a simplified lens through which we can consider far more complicated individual phenomena. Sweet foods and savory foods exist, but again, only as a high-level abstraction. On the individual level, I can totally cook something for you that's kind of savory, but also kind of sweet, and you're not totally sure which course of the meal you want to have it in. Nor could you say categorically what distinguishes a sweet dish from a savory dish. I mean, I realize I said a few episodes ago that it's umami. Dishes with lots of umami are unlikely to be regarded as sweet, but it's way more complicated than that. The dish also 
has to have lots of sugar in order to be regarded as sweet, even though lots of savory dishes also have lots of sugar. And even if you can formulate a rule, there are a million exceptions, like all the miso and bean paste desserts in Japan, filled with umami. Race is real even though it's mostly a social construct. Just because something is a social construct doesn't mean it isn't real. We make it real by believing that it exists, and the people who came before us made it real by believing that it exists. Even if we choose to stop believing, the legacy remains. And race does kind of exist on the biological level as well. There do tend to be relatively minor, but significant, biological differences between a person of, say, West African heritage and a person of Northern European heritage. Some differences you can see, like melanin levels in the skin and hair. Some differences you can't see, like whose bodies keep producing lactase enzyme into adulthood, allowing them to eat dairy at all ages. The differences are real, but they're not categorical. Some people from Senegal are lactase persistent and can drink milk just fine in adulthood. Some people from Ireland have a fair bit of melanin in their hair or even their skin, the black Irish. This is to say nothing of the ways in which race gets confounded in our modern age of global travel and global fraternity, shall we say? Black and white do exist, but on the individual level, it's way more complicated than that. Black and white are not categories, they are tendencies. Male and female are tendencies. When an anthropologist says, hey, we've unearthed a female skeleton, what they're really saying is, we've unearthed a skeleton that tends toward female traits in the shape of the pelvis, etc. But that's an unwieldy way to talk, so for shorthand, they say the skeleton is female. Male and female do exist, but on the individual level, it's way more complicated than that, and it's about way more than who you want to have sex with. Somebody like J.K. Rowling might say, I'm cool with gay people. Dumbledore was gay in a very special retcon kind of way, but what's up with all these men now saying that they're women? Well... I think a lot of trans people might have identified as gay 20 or 30 years ago because that was the only socially accepted category available to them. They might not have even realized that they were trans because a model for what that means simply didn't exist in their world. Western society got cool with gay people amazingly quickly once it started. I mean, I'm sure it didn't feel so fast or so smooth to the people whose lives were in the balance during that transition, and I'm sure it still doesn't feel so great to the gay kid who's out there growing up right now in some terrifying ultra-conservative household. But overall, Western society got hip to gay people pretty fast. In contrast, we seem to have hit a roadblock when it comes to accepting other kinds of sexual and gender diversity, probably for a number of reasons, but one is certainly the reason that has gotten J.K. Rowling so exercised that she's been willing to flush her legacy down the toilet over it. Gender is not a strict binary, never has been, and yet... Lots of societies all over the world have historically organized themselves within the abstract concept of the strict binary. Boys change their clothes in this room. Girls change their clothes in this room. Personally, I forgive society for organizing itself thusly for a very long time. You don't have to forgive society for that, but I do. The act of setting policy is the act of drawing bright lines through gray areas. We understand that nothing magically happens on a person's 18th birthday that transforms them from a child into an adult, but we have to draw the legal line between childhood and adulthood somewhere, so 18th birthday. I get that there are legitimate societal interests to be served in segregating genders in some contexts, and in harder, leaner times, you might need to do that along a strict binary because you only have the resources to accommodate two distinct groups and no more, to say nothing of the very strong societal imperative toward maximum rates of reproduction to ensure the survival of your society in more dangerous times. But we live in charmed times, blessed times. Our society can handle more nuance now, which is why we 
are, or we're trying to. J.K. Rowling seems terrified, to the point of pathological hysteria about men saying that they identify as women just so they can get into the ladies' washroom and somehow harm J.K. Rowling. Let us stipulate that feelings are neither good nor bad. I understand Rowling's gut feeling there. I also understand why feminists of her generation feel that their movement and all of the amazing progress it has achieved is now being invaded by some of the men against whom they have been fighting all these years. TERF stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminist, and I do get where the TERFs are coming from. I understand the feelings, and feelings are neither good nor bad. Nobody should shame J.K. Rowling for feeling the way she does, but shame her all day long for what she chooses to do with those feelings. Here's how I look at it, if you care. The recognition and acceptance of trans people is going to cause some problems in a society previously organized around a strict gender binary that only ever existed as an intellectual abstraction. But anyway, the question of trans people in competitive athletics is a legitimately sticky one. Because of my relationships, I used to hang around the uh, roller derby subculture quite a lot. For people in other parts of the world who might not know about it, roller derby is this rather rough contact team sport played on roller skates, historically by women. It emerged in the mid-20th century in the U.S. as a kind of unserious sports entertainment, kind of like wrestling entertainment. And like wrestling, it was oriented significantly toward the male gaze, buxom young ladies out on the roller rink pushing and shoving each other for the entertainment of men. But... Around the turn of the 21st century, roller derby came back as a kind of third-wave feminism subculture. Punky, DIY, still fun and kind of campy, with the skaters adopting comic bookish pseudonyms and such, but 100% seriously athletic and not particularly concerned with the male gaze. Roller derby is now a serious international women's sport. Anyway, by extension of the women I've been involved with, I have been around roller derby for a long time. And like 15 years ago, there was anxious talk among the women of roller derby about how to handle trans women who might want to play. Modern roller derby is an alternative culture on the vanguard of progressive values. Their instinct was to be maximally inclusive of everyone, but they were also nervous about playing a contact sport against somebody with a more typically male musculoskeletal structure. They were nervous about possibly getting hurt, and they were nervous about possibly losing to bigger, stronger skaters. I was privy to such chatter about 15 years ago. I doubt anyone in roller derby expresses such anxieties out loud anymore, as they have become socially unacceptable, and rightly so. Because some things are more important than sports. Letting people live a life consistent with their basic conception of who they are, in as much as is practically possible, is more important than games. I'm not the kind of bookish person who is going to pretend that sports don't matter at all. I'm sorry, Brits. By sports, of course, I mean sport. Sport does matter, especially in schools and universities, where segregated female athletics have historically provided girls with all kinds of really important developmental opportunities that they couldn't get in the broader male-dominated society. To say nothing of all the scholarship money available to female athletes in college under Title IX, which is the, the U.S. law that requires colleges to fund male and female athletics at comparable levels. All that stuff is important. All I'm saying is that I think it's more important to let trans people live their lives as their true selves and to defer to their own judgment about who their true selves are. There's going to be a weird and uncomfortable shakeout period where we have to reorganize our society to better include the 10 or 20% of hetero, gender, binary, non-conforming people who have always existed, but we have historically lacked the societal capacity or the societal will to recognize and accommodate. 
It's going to be hard and weird to break out of the binary. Even people like me, who have the best of intentions and want to be as inclusive of everyone as possible, we're going to screw up. We're going to misgender people. We're going to reach for the wrong pronoun. We're going to feel weird using plural pronouns like they and them as gender-neutral singular pronouns, even though there's a centuries-old tradition of doing that in English. Some of us are going to be uncomfortable with the public bathroom thing and the military thing and all of the situations where people have historically kept themselves physically separate along the lines of a strict gender binary that never really existed in the first place and we are now trying to grow beyond. We're going to be sincerely confused about how best to support children who tell us they don't fit into the gender binary. That's a really tough one. What kinds of gender-affirming care to provide kids who might not have a fully formed gender identity yet, as kids generally don't have any kind of fully formed identity yet? That's why they're kids. Are there kids who think they're trans or say they're trans just because being trans is the hot new transgressive thing in the culture and they want to jump on the bandwagon? Probably a few of them. Because that's human nature. That's just the kind of thing that kids have always historically done. I'm not worried about it. I think it's all going to work out in the wash as we metabolize the realization that the strict gender binary was always a highly imperfect social construct, and it is time for us all to transcend it, to come to a fuller, more nuanced understanding of our own species, and to somewhat reorganize our society around that more nuanced understanding. And I personally think those of us who can extend a little more grace to people who are having trouble with this reorganization, we ought to. The discourse around trans inclusion is so poisonous right now. Everybody screams at everyone else for not getting it 100% right, however they define 100% right to be. I'm sure there are already comments on this episode from people telling me I did not get something right, and I will try really hard to read those with an open mind. But I think we really got to lower the temperature of this discussion. Those of us who can lower it. If you're a trans kid and you've got lots of disapproving adults or other bullies in your life who threaten your safety, I don't think you owe grace to anyone. I think you got to do whatever you need to do to stay alive. But those of us who are not particularly personally threatened by matters of trans inclusion or trans exclusion and related issues, I think that we need to try to chill out. If only as a matter of practical strategy, you catch more bees with honey than with vinegar? Jumping down grandma's throat because she isn't hip to the new pronoun regime probably does not advance the cause of trans inclusion. If anything, it does the opposite by introducing cognitive dissonance. Grandma thinks to herself, they say I'm being hateful, but I know I'm not hateful. Therefore, something must be wrong with them. I wonder what's wrong with them. I guess I'll turn on Fox News to learn more. I don't fault J.K. Rowling for feeling nervous and threatened amidst this relatively minor reorganization of society, nor do I really fault her for expressing that nervousness the way she maybe did like 20 years ago. People like me, people with no direct connection to the trans world, most of us did not have the knowledge and the tools necessary to understand gender diversity until quite recently. I shudder to think what tranny jokes I must have cracked with my shithead friends in junior high school like 25 years ago. But I have forgiven myself for not understanding until relatively recently, all of this. You, you don't have to forgive me. <laughs> you don't have to forgive me at all. And I forgive you if you don't forgive me. Again, I think a trans kid in insecure circumstances today owes pretty much nothing to no one. You have one job, and that is to stay alive. And if you want to say, come on, teenage Adam Ragusea could have learned about gender diversity. There were books you could have read. And to that, I would say, yeah, granted, but let's get real. Almost all people chiefly absorb their morality from the cultural milieu around them. You may think you're better than that, more individual than that, but you probably aren't. Most of us simply inherit a moral conception of the world that we 
tweak slightly ourselves over the course of our lives, but people who are able to design a whole new framework are truly rare and extraordinary, and that ain't me, and it probably isn't you. Most of us just go through life doing what we think we're supposed to be doing, what we think the people around us expect of us. And that is how I came to sexually harass women. I grew up absorbing a model of masculinity where a man struts through life with a lot of sexual confidence and he flirts playfully with all the women around him. And they love it, he presumes, because they grew up absorbing a model of femininity where women defer to men and do everything to make men feel good about themselves, such as laughing at flirty jokes that are neither funny nor welcome. Of course, sometimes the jokes are funny and welcome. Lots of women I flirted with in my younger days probably really did like it, as evidenced by their subsequent choices and actions. In fact, only one woman in my whole life has ever pulled me aside and said, hey, don't do that with me. Cut that shit out. But if one woman worked up the courage to do that, I assume many more wish they had. And I want them to know that I'm really sorry. And for self-interested reasons, I want them to know that I wasn't just being a perv intent on self-gratification. I, I was mostly just doing what everybody else does. I was behaving the way I thought the world wanted me to behave. My dad was the kind of guy who would flirt playfully with the ladies behind the counter at the bank or the butcher, and they always seemed to love it. A lot of them probably did love it, and some of them maybe didn't really care, and maybe a few of them were really bothered by it. But I didn't know that because women didn't really talk about it in ways that would reach my ears until really the whole Me Too movement bubbled up. I used to be a hugger, I hugged everyone, not because I'm a sick perv, but because I thought people liked that. I thought it made them feel welcome and appreciated, and I thought it made me seem gregarious. But some significant number of people really do not like to be hugged, and I really didn't know that. You can fault me for not knowing that. You could say that my ignorance was the result of my lack of curiosity and empathetic imagination, and maybe you're right. But what you can't say is that I heard the good word and ignored it. When I got the message that lots of women really do not like it when a random dude hugs them and playfully flirts with them in, in the workplace or whatever, I cut that shit out. And that's why I forgive myself for that conduct. You don't have to forgive me, but I've forgiven myself and I've tried to move on as a better person. If you need better people for your workplace, consider finding them with Indeed, sponsor of this episode. Don't waste your time looking for job candidates across a million different job boards. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows that more than 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates, candidates whose resume on Indeed matches your job description the moment you sponsor a job. Soon as you sponsor a job, you get a short list of quality candidates, and you invite them to apply right away. Even better, candidates whom you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to actually apply for your job because you reached out to them. That's as compared to candidates who only see your job in like search results. Indeed knows that when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have requirements. Go to Indeed.com slash Ragusea to start hiring now. Indeed.com slash Ragusea. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Anyway, excessive familiarity is just one example of sketchy stuff I've done in my past for which I've tried to atone. You probably have your own sketchy shit in your past. Most people do, not just most men. J.K. Rowling could have absorbed the evolving, progressing discourse on gender diversity, and she could have said, you know, guys, I got it wrong. 
there's really no reason to think that trans inclusion is going to be a threat to women. And if it ever is, we'll deal with those problems one by one as they come up, because letting people live as who they feel they are in as much as is practically possible, is really important. And it's worth all of us working through a little discomfort to accommodate. But that is not what J.K. Rowling said. She has doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on her position that historically female spaces must be kept free of anyone whom she would categorize as male, even though maleness is not a category, it's a tendency. Maybe if the discourse had been less shrill, if people had extended her a little more grace, maybe she might not have felt cornered into doubling down, but, you know, she's an adult, an extremely wealthy, privileged adult, and she is responsible for her own actions. Also, legitimately threatened and marginalized trans people don't owe anyone grace. Your job is just to stay alive. I will try to be gracious on your behalf, as I have tried to be gracious to Rowling in this discussion. I've tried to present her point of view as sympathetically as possible, because I want to understand where she's coming from so that I can help fix the problem here. Does Mario Batali deserve grace? From me, specifically? I mean, I've just admitted to you that I have sexually harassed women in the past, just as Mario Batali has admitted. I don't think I've ever sexually assaulted anyone, and to my knowledge, no one has ever accused me of that, but there's a funny thing about sexual encounters. The parties don't always experience them the same way, and they don't always communicate about their experiences. Mario Batali says he doesn't think he ever sexually assaulted anyone. There's an important epistemological distinction there. I don't know what Mario Batali thinks I only know what he says he thinks, so I said, just now, Batali says he thinks he never sexually assaulted anyone. I used to hit that point with my journalism students all the time. They would write a sentence like, the mayor feels the new park will be a benefit to the neighborhood, and I would say, no, 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 no. You have no idea how the mayor feels. You only know what he said he feels. So that's what you say. Reporting is not about what you suspect to be true. It's about what you know to be true, which is why I wish everyone could take a journalism class in school, because otherwise you might live your whole life never really interrogating the distinction between what you suspect, what you've heard, and what you know. Anyway. Batali says he thinks he never sexually assaulted anyone. And on May the 10th, 2022, Boston Municipal Court Judge James Stanton agreed, at least in one case. The judge found Batali not guilty of indecent assault and battery in an incident that happened in 2017 outside of a restaurant in the Tony Back Bay neighborhood of Boston. It seems that Mario went out and uh, had a few too many drinks and got too handsy with several women. One woman recognized him. He suggested that they take a selfie together, and according to her, he kissed her and grabbed her in several highly sensitive places, and it was not welcome. Batali waived his right to a jury trial in favor of a bench trial, where a judge simply decides the case. One reason people do that is if they think they have drawn a judge who will be sympathetic to their position. I have no idea if that's what happened in this case, but Judge James Stanton ruled in Batali's favor, saying that the accuser had various credibility issues and was potentially motivated by money. Stanton said that Batali had acted inappropriately, especially for a public figure of his stature, but it did not rise to the level of a criminal assault. After this ruling came down, somebody DM'd me and said something to the effect of, are you going to take back what you said about Mario Batali now that he's been exonerated? And I was tempted to reply with the gif of Mandy Patinkin from The Princess Bride, where he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Exonerate means to absolve of any blame for wrongdoing. Being found not guilty in a criminal court is not the same thing as being exonerated. People who do terrible things get found not guilty for them 
all the time. And indeed, that's the way the U.S. criminal justice system is supposed to work. It's supposed to be based upon the belief that it's better to let a guilty person go than it is to punish an innocent person. So the system is weighted in favor of the accused, or at least it's supposed to be. In this particular case, the judge didn't exonerate Mario Batali of anything. Batali got way, way too familiar with a much younger woman who recognized him from TV. All sides in the case agree to that basic set of facts. All the judge did was say that what happened didn't rise to the level of a criminal assault, which on its face seems to me like a perfectly defensible ruling. Governing is about drawing bright lines through gray areas, right? Somebody has to make an arbitrary call about where the line is between shitty behavior and criminal behavior. And so the judge makes the call. The judge arbitrates it, if you will. Batali, I will say to his credit, simply put out statement after public statement saying he has behaved terribly with women, he makes no excuses, and he apologizes to everyone he has hurt. On the surface, at least, he seems to have done what I would think he should do, which is take the L, take his money, and resign from public life. I am someone who thinks that cancel culture is a real thing that really is, at least sometimes, bad, in the way that I think virtue signaling is a real thing that is sometimes bad. Straight cisgender people who yell at grandma for using the wrong pronouns are, I think, sometimes performing zealous allyship because they want to look or feel righteous, even if doing so is ultimately bad for their ostensible cause of trans inclusion because it backs grandma into a corner and fills her with cognitive dissonance. Instead, you could have assumed best intentions and simply sat down and tried to explain the whole legitimately confusing pronoun thing to grandma. That's how you actually do a mitzvah. Just yelling at grandma to make yourself look or feel righteous is the bad kind of virtue signaling. When you discover that somebody said or did something you regard as immoral— and you pile on to demand this person's ejection from society without considering whether the accusation is true, without considering whether the alleged offense is part of a broader pattern of behavior or if it's just an isolated bad choice, if you pile on without considering the severity of the offense, yeah, I think that's the bad kind of cancel culture. Fortunately, I don't think it's very common. Just based on my anecdotal experience, I've worked in media my entire professional life, and I've worked with or near many media figures who have been canceled in recent years, and in my humble opinion, every single one of them had it coming. Maybe they didn't really deserve to be canceled for the specific thing that Twitter noticed and got mad about, but they were all a-holes who had a long history of saying and doing really shitty things, which is why not that many colleagues rushed to their defense. Not every one of these people was irredeemable in my mind. I can think of a podcaster I used to listen to. He was on like the periphery of my social professional circle. He was a friend of friends. And he said something that got the internet mad at him, and it cost him his career, at least for a while. I was sad about that because I really liked the show that he made that I listened to. I was sad for my friends who worked with him and made that show with him. When individual people get canceled, their shows get canceled. And those shows were the creation of many, many people, some of whom may have been enablers, but most of whom were probably blameless. I was frustrated that the so-called Twitter mob that came after this podcaster, really didn't know him and was digging up his past and taking things out of context and tarring him with accusations that really weren't accurate in my estimation. For instance, this is a guy who used to make lots of ironic anti-Semitic jokes. And people saw these old tweets and said, look, he's also an anti-Semite, even though he absolutely was not and is not an anti-Semite. Those were not anti-Semitic jokes. They were jokes about anti-Semitism. 
which you could argue a person should not make. It's crass to make jokes about such a serious and tragic phenomenon, but not all crass jokes are bad. It all depends on the context and who is making them and who is receiving them and the particular social bond between those parties. I don't think those jokes this guy made years ago were cancelable offenses, but at the same time, I think he had it coming because he was an a-hole and he had cultivated an image as a grumpy jerk. Several of my friends had been on the receiving end of this guy's a-holery, and so not a lot of people wept when he did his grumpy jerk act online one day, and it randomly went viral, and it cost him his career, at least temporarily. No doubt there are people who have become the objects of viral outrage for little or no good reason, and that's really bad, but I doubt it's common. Also, if cancel culture is a problem, it is a much smaller problem than the problems that cancellation is intended to address. Easy for me to say, as I have not yet been canceled for any of the many shitty things I have said and done in my long life. People have tried, even before I became YouTube famous. In a prior life, I once wrote a piece for Slate where I said some negative things about then-U.S. presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, and the Bernie bros came after me, digging up things I'd written years ago and taking them wildly out of context, trying to gin up viral outrage against me. I wonder if I would have been canceled by now if I made cooking shows on TV instead of doing it independently on YouTube. I'm not really part of some broader institutional structure people can blame for enabling me. There was no smoke-filled room of high-paid media executives who said, hey, that Ragusia kid, let's get him on prime time. My audience just came to me via the YouTube algorithm, of course, but the algorithm is mostly just a feedback loop. It intensifies naturally occurring audience behavior. If people don't like me and think I shouldn't have a career, all they need to do is stop watching, and many of them have, I'm sure. But there's no like bigger institution for them to attack. They can't go to the Food Network and say, Ragusi is a jerk, you should deplatform him. Maybe if I was on the Food Network, that would happen. I'm really glad I'm not on the Food Network for this and many other reasons. I do not desire, nor do I court, mainstream success and recognition. I have you, my community, and you are enough to provide me with a sense of fulfillment and a great living. I plan to always reject any offer from a national TV show or whatever for me to come on and do a thing because that only presents me with useless risk. The risk that someone might see me and not like me and go digging on the internet for some stupid thing I posted with my AOL account when I was 14 years old in the 90s before it ever occurred to anyone that all the shit we were posting on the internet was permanent. <laughs> I also sincerely believe that I don't deserve to be canceled. I think I'm a basically good person who's made some mistakes that thankfully haven't seriously hurt anyone to my knowledge, and I've tried really hard to atone for those mistakes and help the people I've harmed, and I've tried to move on as a better person, but that's probably how Mario Batali sees himself as well. But with Batali, it wasn't just the one night in Boston when he got drunk and handsy. As reported by Eater and several other news orgs, it was part of a pattern of really bad behavior going back years and years where Mario would try way too hard to mack on younger women, many of whom were his employees or potential employees, i.e., low-level people in the restaurant industry, and you should especially avoid macking on subordinates because you can never be sure if they're reciprocating because they like you or if they're reciprocating because they really need this job. I'm not saying that a legitimate, equitable relationship can't flower between two people across a power imbalance. It happens all the time, but you have to be really, really careful about it, far more careful than Mario Batali evidently was. If he had been more careful, women probably wouldn't have complained. 
And Batali was not a young man when all of this is alleged to have occurred. Most of my worst behavior with women occurred like in my early 20s, when my brain was not yet fully developed and I made all kinds of terrible choices, as people usually do in their teens and early 20s. Mario seems to have behaved this way well into his 50s. Based upon my understanding of the allegations, he seems to have gotten the appropriate sentence. He's not in jail. I don't think he lost all his money, but he had to sell his stake in all of his restaurants and retire in shame from public life. His harmful behavior cost him his celebrity and his legacy. Based on my limited knowledge of what he did, that seems like a just outcome. But back to the question at hand, am I a jerk if I watch old episodes of Molto Mario on YouTube? I don't think so. Those episodes are pirated. So it's probably unlikely that my views are translating into income for Batali or any of his enablers. But even if my viewership did generate income for him, I don't think I'm helping to fund an ongoing sexual harassment enterprise. By all outward indication, Mario has simply slinked into private life with his tail between his legs, and he isn't doing much of anything. But if another woman came forward now and said that he got drunk and handsy with her last week, maybe that would change my mind. Here's the more important thing. What I studiously avoid is publicly talking about Mario Batali in a positive light without first heaping on a metric ton of context, as I did in that video that I made about him a few years ago, where I said a lot of nice things about him. This is important because when we praise people who have done particularly harmful things, that sends a message that is received by people who have been the victims of that kind of harm. I guarantee you there's a server working in a restaurant right now who watches my videos, who has to deal with a creepy boss at work who's always hitting on her in these really aggressive and gross ways, and she's afraid to say anything because she really needs that job. And if I get on the internet and I say something complimentary of Mario Batali without further context, I am saying to that server that I don't care very much about what she's going through. And that is bad. So back to our questioner, Adam. Adam from Hershey, Pennsylvania. Adam, that's what I think death of the artist really means. It means leaving the artist behind in shame and moving on with the artist's creations in hand, or maybe not. Sounds like Adam maybe wants to play the new Harry Potter game, and he's not sure if it's morally right for him to pay $70 into the Potter rolling industrial complex. I mean, I know he said he thinks it's okay, but I doubt he would have asked my opinion on the subject if he's 100% certain in his thinking. It's good for people to second-guess themselves and ask a friend for their opinion. I think I would not buy the Harry Potter game. First of all, Rowling's misdeeds, if you consider them misdeeds, are not ancient history. Her campaign against trans inclusion is large, active, and ongoing. Buying her IP funds that campaign. It probably doesn't matter that much. She's going to have more than enough money to keep doing what she does, whether you buy a book or a game or not. The whole world could boycott Potter products immediately, and she'd still have far more money than she could ever need for the rest of her life. So honestly, if you buy the Potter game anyway, I won't be mad at you. But then again, I'm probably not the observer you should be worrying about. I think you should think about how your consumption looks to your friends who do not fit comfortably on a strict gender binary, and you probably have such friends even if you don't realize it. I think the most important factor to consider is their feelings, because as uncomfortable as this moment of societal transition may be for cisgendered straights like me, it is far more uncomfortable and scary and dangerous for trans people. 
and other sexual and gender minorities. And if you are trans and you want to buy the Potter game anyway yourself, don't listen to a damn thing I say. I have absolutely no standing to tell you to do anything. When it comes to you, my job is to listen, not talk. For people like me, yeah, I think my vote is don't buy the Harry Potter game, which sucks. I mean, it doesn't really suck for me because Harry Potter hit when I was just old enough to not be interested in kids' books anymore, but I wasn't yet mature enough to read a kids' book that's good enough that everybody should read it, which is how lots of very smart people describe Harry Potter. I wouldn't know. I haven't read them. But I love Star Trek The Next Generation. Captain Picard is the most important fictional character in my life. He was probably my best fictional male role model growing up. If it came out that Patrick Stewart was a creep and my streaming of Star Trek was putting residual dollars directly into his creepy pocket, that would crush me. Because creators don't really own their creations, right? We receive those creations and we integrate them into our own imaginations and our own life stories and cultures. Harry Potter is way bigger than J.K. Rowling. It belongs to you, the reader. It belongs to all the other creative people who worked on those books and the movies and the video games, some of whom are probably enablers of Rowling's shitty behavior, but most of whom have nothing to do with it, and they may have even denounced her shitty behavior, as Daniel Radcliffe did. I feel bad that Daniel Radcliffe seems to be a really decent guy, and yet the movie role he played as Harry Potter, which will be mentioned in the first line of his obituary, will always have this asterisk on it, because J.K. Rowling is an unrepentant turf. Now, some cultural objects are so huge that they really do transcend their creators, there is a lot of reason to believe that Michael Jackson was a child molester. And if he wasn't like an actual molester, he probably was a creepy guy who forged creepy relationships with young boys that psychologically damaged them. Nobody talks about canceling Michael Jackson's music. Nobody virtue signals by saying, hey, bro, turn off Billie Jean. That's offensive. In part, this is because Michael Jackson's alleged transgressions happened before the social internet really existed, just as Snoop Dogg participated in a drive-by shooting that killed a guy, but it happened before the internet, so nobody seems to care that much. Maybe we should care about that. To my knowledge, Snoop has not done enough to publicly atone for what he did, allegedly. We don't care about Michael Jackson because he's dead. And his music is way bigger than him. It's ours now. It's part of our lives, which go on, unlike his. But back to Potter. If Rowling repents, or at least disappears from public life, maybe there can be a reconsideration of her published legacy. I feel bad for all the people out there who feel they have to give up this huge part of their childhoods so as to not be complicit in Rowling's ongoing a holery. I hope you can claim Potter back from her one day. But here's another thing to consider. Maybe Harry Potter is actually not that important. <laughs> maybe those books actually aren't that good. Or maybe they are, but there's lots of other books out there that are just as good. We get attached to things for all kinds of reasons apart from their intrinsic qualities. It's like the first time you fall in love. You are utterly overwhelmed by the power of those feelings, and you naturally conclude those feelings are emanating from this person you're in love with. But then you fall in love a second time, and you realize, oh... A lot of that is just what love feels like. I was feeling love more so than I was feeling that specific person. Some people who live in very socially conservative times and places never get the chance to make that realization because they're only ever really allowed to be with one person for life. Star Trek has many intrinsic merits, but the main reason it means so much to me is that it hit me at a formative age. 
one wonders how much canon formation can be attributed to this kind of familiarity bias. Was Shakespeare really that great? Or was he just in the right place at the right time to have his oeuvre sucked up into the Western literary canon? And now all traditionally educated people in the West read Shakespeare when they're at a really formative age and they naturally become attached to it and thus the canon perpetuates itself. I kind of think Shakespeare actually is that good, but I'm not a literary scholar and my opinion doesn't matter that much. I did go to music school and I think J.S. Bach really was good enough to justify his place in the canon, no matter how much of a jerk he was. Fortunately, there's no major personal argument against Bach as far as I know. There is a personal argument to be made against Richard Wagner. Wagner was a proto-Nazi. And he was a good composer and a dramatist, but I don't think he was that good. So I'm perfectly happy if he eventually gets left in the dustbin of history. I think that what hurts most about the whole Potter thing is that Potter fans want to give those books to their own kids. They want their kids to experience the magic that they experienced. But I think you should consider that the magic wasn't really the magic of Potter. It's the magic of reading. Reading is the magic. And I think you should have faith that your kids will find their own Potter. Just read to them every night when they're little. Take them to the bookstore or the library. Try to get them any book that they're interested in. Praise them for reading. And they will probably find their own Potter. And maybe their Potter will be better and written by a better person. I speak from experience. Having kids can sometimes feel like an opportunity to recapture your own lost youth and thereby transcend your own mortality. This is understandable, but it is selfish. Cultural objects aren't important just because they were important to you. That's something I wish I could go back in time and say to the mostly white, upper-class male scholars who assembled the Western cultural canon that is now thrust upon generation after generation of students. One really good thing about the Me Too movement in media was that it cleared out a lot of dead wood. A lot of guys who had held really prominent positions in media since forever lost their jobs. And whether that was right or wrong, it did clear space for a new generation of different kinds of people to get their turn at the mic. Molto Mario was a great show. It will always be a part of me, but it's over. And I don't need to thrust it on a subsequent generation of people just so that I can feel as though a part of me will live on after I cease to live on. You'll find your own Molto Mario. Maybe the Adam Ragusea channel is your Molto Mario. Maybe you'll have to wrestle with that uncomfortably in a few years after I get canceled for some shitty thing I did or am doing. I will probably feel that my cancellation was not justified, but I would feel that way, wouldn't I? Until that day comes, I thank you for listening to the Adam Ragusea podcast. If you have an idea for something that I should talk about, hit me up at askadamquestions at gmail.com. Askadamquestions at gmail. Ideally, send your thing as a video or an audio file. Make good choices. Posterity could judge you forever by just one poor choice you make. Talk to you next time.